Vancouver Island is a 32,000 square kilometer island occupied by over 850,000 residents and growing. Food and agriculture represents a major portion of the local economy. Fishing is one of the most productive industries and there are lots of commercial fisheries that operate on the island. There are also consumer food products that have set up operations in the region and these include breweries, wineries, food processing plants, bakeries and dairies. The island is also one of the few areas that can grow Mediterranean crops in Canada. With costly transportation options, growing climate change challenges and a population that ranges from rural to remote to urban, food security has become an important topic. Policies have been developed and the process of education is now taking place as the island works toward a secure, safe and sustainable food future. But for Indigenous people of Vancouver Island, it is more than security, it is sovereignty that is on our minds. Hello, my name is Chadis Leo. Welcome back to Indigenous Voices of Vancouver Island Season 2, a podcast series made possible by 4VI, an organization dedicated to ensuring travel remains a force for good on Vancouver Island forever. These podcasts would not be possible without the many Indigenous tourism businesses that have contributed their insights and time. In episode three, we are looking into food sovereignty, Indigenous values about food and how businesses are shaping those values into commercial and tourist organizations. Let's start with a primer on the difference between food security and food sovereignty. Generally, food security means healthy food is affordable and easy to access and that we all have the skills, resources, time and tools to make healthy food choices and prepare healthy meals. It means being able to find foods that fit our cultural values and having opportunities to grow food in gardens and harvest it from our lands and waters. And in a healthy food system, the people who supply our food can do so in a way that is both economically and environmentally sustainable. Food security is a global concern and at the top of most countries' priority list. Food sovereignty, however, is a food system in which the people who produce, distribute and consume food also control the various aspects of the supply chain. They are also able to contribute or manage the policies of food production and distribution. This is a little more challenging as it stands in contrast to the prevalent food system, which is composed of large corporations. Although they both relate to food, they are apples and oranges in terms of their approach. They are similar in terms of getting food to hungry mouths sustainably. And now that the difference is clear, let's hear from our guests on how food sovereignty is being addressed and promoted on Vancouver Island. We start with words and actions from a company who has made their name by harvesting and marketing local food supplies. Hello, I am Stevie Dennis. I am of the uh, House of First Nations and I am a small business owner in Tofino, British Columbia. I own a business called NOS Foods. So my business fits right into this category of what we're wanting to talk about. I specialize in working with seafoods that are harvested locally here in Clayquit Sound. And as far as 
you clue it in Port Alberni. So yeah, it, it, it really comes down to just bringing premium seafoods from the local environment to the local market. I think that's kind of the biggest angle uh, that we've pushed here is getting a, a, a quality food for everybody. I, I think that's something that a lot of people love is when they walk into the store and they say, Where, where's this fish from? Like, right here. This is from my Uncle Lewis, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, that's that's really, in a nutshell, what we do. The other side of it is we, we help people that go out and go and get their own fish. We'll process their seafood, vacuum pack it, freeze it, make it look all beautiful, and then they can take home their own fish because I think that's a big portion of what uh, people are really looking for is just, you know, they want to get their own quality product. I asked Stevie what food sovereignty looked like to him. Very challenging to look at it within the communities. There is the Western-style communities, uh, which is people coming in and sport fishing, people going to restaurants, people coming in and getting fish right from my store. There is the commercial side of the communities, which is the wholesaling, buying fish off of relatives and uncles, and even fish that I go out and get and providing that to the local market. And then there's the next one, which is uh, what I've been working on since day one, was working with the nations and further processing their fish for preservation. So the nations will go out, they allocate a certain amount of fish that they can catch, and then I process it, vacuum pack it, freeze it, and this goes directly to the people. So, you know, there's a few different angles to kind of hit it, but I think at the end of the day, it's just focusing on the sustainability, locally sourced, all the things that have been kind of flying around at the top of the businesses. I think it's just being able to source it out from right here and letting people feel good and have that pride and respect with the food that they're eating. I also asked why food sovereignty was so important to the people Stevie worked with and the future of the communities. I will touch on what I know, and that's within working through the fisheries. So... You, you can go down the, the rabbit hole and, and look at Ha'um fisheries and the Takuyak fisheries and see how this was created and what it did to the people with respect of growing the community in a better direction. All of a sudden, our people were allowed to go out and fish for salmon, halibut, lingcod, and, and actually sell that. And so this starts to create a local economy where people can have their livelihoods and go back to what we all knew and grew up with. I work with fish, you know, and, and the next the next aspect of my business is going to be working with seaweeds and kelps, but working with with the nations and seeing how this has grown into this large fishery now that has given all these people an opportunity to provide for their families and provide a better life and, and get these people geared up and going, you know, I would believe in, in my mind that alone is a way to, to have sovereignty and, and stand up and say, you know, I, I can go out and I can make a, a solid living. I could show my family a bit more. So that's one aspect of what we do. And and I participate in that. That's something that has helped me do what I've I, I, I've achieved. You know, I'm, I'm a commercial crab fisherman as well as a, a small business owner. So I go out and, and I participate in the Takuyak fishery. And this is um, this is something that's helped me get to where I am. But the fact that not all First Nations people had opportunities in this area was top of mind for Stevie. 
communities are in different spots. And I've had the opportunity to talk with other nations on this level that we are, you know, and some nations are right in the middle of a city, you know, and, and there's no aspect of being able to go out and harvest fish from the creek, you know, like it's it's challenging. And out here on the coast, you know, where my people come from, it's it's a 14 nautical mile boat ride away from Tofino. I grew up seeing people bring fish back to the dock. People bringing a deer or an elk or something, a bear, bringing it to the community and feeding the people. So this is something that I, I've i seen and I've witnessed. And I know that it doesn't, maybe from an outside point of view, doesn't seem like that big. But just growing up and knowing that's normal, you know, that, you know, somebody calls on the VHF. Hey, I got uh, 20 ducks coming in. Who wants them? And families walk down and they pick it up. You know, that's. That's a beautiful, beautiful way of life. The challenge is in, in other other communities is they don't have that opportunity, you know. And I think so. Bringing that bringing that into into the community's light, let's say, and saying, "Hey, I know we don't have that opportunity to go and harvest a, a deer right here in the middle of the city, but let's start engaging in ways that we could." And I think that's one of the cool parts about the indigenous law is that communities have been, I like to say, reclaiming territory and reclaiming rights and reclaiming all these things, which is empowering their people to do more with what they're acquiring. So, you know, maybe the opportunity to do courses where you can go out and harvest these foods and do these things. And and with that, I think the other aspect of this whole, you know, let's say normal way of life, it gives you the opportunity to engage in uh, regulating it and making sure this practice can keep going. You know, that's one of the most important things is to have sovereignty and do this all on your own is it has to be regulated. And we have to take what we used to do hundreds of years ago and bring that into a modern context and, you know, really try to push for for this to keep going. I don't know what I would do if the salmon stopped showing up, you know, or if the crab just disappeared. It's a scary thought, but it's, it's just normal for me out here. And I think to take it one step back is to express that the indigenous cuisine at least out here where I am was seafood. So when people are having seafood, you're already participating. I think the style of saying with western styles or asian styles and all these different spices and ways of cooking, you know, that's just a fusion or a twist on the on the food itself. You know, I, I was actually just talking to my buddy the other day and we had some people asking us how we how you would cook this piece of salmon. And we're giving out all these different styles and what we like and what we we, we have tried. And um, and at the end, I was like, you know, but the funny thing is, is with salmon, both him and I can agree the best salmon we've ever had was on a fishing boat where we just cooked it in a pan without anything. A little bit of salt water and you just fried it up. Done deal, you know. So I, I, I don't know how to phrase it in saying go and find indigenous cuisine. Go and get some fried bread. You know, have a fried bologna sandwich. That's a West Coast delicacy, let's say. I go down to the dock, I buy their fish, and I sell that in my store. Right there is the culture. Because back in the day, you would have thought that there was people going fishing and coming back, and they would just, here you go, go eat, you know, go feed your family. Done deal. So what does the future hold? Food sovereignty and future... It's hard to look at everybody's future 
you know, the, the idea behind what the nations do and what the government does and what the people need. There's only so much that we can change within our direct world. I've got a kelp farm that I'm going to be setting up within the next two years. And that's going to be focusing towards, I would say, maybe smaller amounts of food consumption, but large amounts of, it's up in the air. It could be fertilizers, could be bioplastics, could be seaweed salads, could be fuel, could be anything, you know? And, and I think that's kind of the angle behind that whole food sovereignty is how do you create products and foods and all these things and have it not shipped halfway around the world? How do you move that inventory right here? From entrepreneurial approaches, we move to a nation's plan and strategy to preserve their land and the use of outside investment to sustain traditional ways to develop food sovereignty. My name is Aaron Hamilton. I'm the operations manager with Tsubasit. I'm originally from Hupetchisit First Nation, but live, work, and play in Lake Couch in Tsubasit. To make sure we're on the same page, I asked Aaron to share with me what food sovereignty was from his perspective. To be able to gather and, 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 and harvest in your surrounding territory and have access to, to traditional foods such as salmon and or elk and deer, which we still practice to this day. Definitely not, not how we used to and, and definitely nowhere near the levels that we used to, just based on people losing um, the teachings and that. But we are trying to reinvigorate it as we, as we proceed in the next generation. Understanding why it was important was my next line of inquiry. It's important and it's integral to the culture. Our, our people have always gathered what has always been bountiful in, in the territories, whether it's berries, whether it's medicines, whether it's other food sources. And then, then being able to, to access, like I said, deer, elk, other animals, and the fish, the sockeye, not sockeye out here so much, but the, the different salmon species that are in the Cowichan River, as well as the tributaries that flow in, whether it's different trouts or, or different subspecies. It's always been integral to the culture of, of Tsubasit to enjoy the bounty of the land um, and only take what's, what's required and, and obviously share it to your community as best you can. We still do that to this day. A great example of that is, is both with fish and elk. When we are fortunate to have different types of, of salmon, we distribute to our community, then we, we go above and beyond that as well to other elders and other communities where required. Um, and with our elk, we do the best we can to, to distribute it far and wide to not only our membership, but also colleagues, people that work with us, other elders, etc. Besides being able to provide for their people, I wanted to know if there were other reasons that would make food sovereignty a big priority. Were there other pressing concerns? Uh, personally, I believe that it's it's going to have a dramatic effect on everyone's personal health, quite honestly. And that's my own personal opinion. I'm of the belief, and I've been taught through through our elders, that without the, the proper diet, we'll, we'll have these foreign type of um, diseases and or health conditions that we never used to have. So you'll see huge spikes in diabetes. You'll see huge spikes in heart health issues, um, et cetera, et cetera, that just keep plaguing our community for the most part, I think it's because it's a foreign diet that we weren't used to. And it's a convenient diet. The whole food system is convenient. It's all built on convenience, right? And I think we're all guilty of that to some extent. You know, we have a small window, I think, of, of time and of people with the knowledge base to try and get back to some kind of traditional diet. Mm-hmm. 
So how does this all tie back to culture? It starts back at, and I, all I can do is draw off my own recollection, you know, it starts back on how you harvest to begin with, right? When, you, when you're going out to, to harvest um, an animal or harvest berries or harvest anything off the land, you know, you're, you're seeking permission and, and guidance from the Creator to begin with. And you're, and you're going out there with, with humility to say, I'm at your whim, and you're, and you're hoping that Creator will, will bless you with something of some sustenance to your community. So you, you're starting with the right mindset when you're going out there to begin with. You're not going out there to, to gorge a whole bunch of food and, 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 and sort of be a, be a bit of a glutton. You're going out there to, with, a, with a mandate to provide for your community. That's, that's what you're already doing. That's already in your mindset. And I think from that, it sort of bridges from that. A lot of traditional cuisine is, is trying to figure out how do you, how do you feed the most mouths with, with what you get. And sometimes there's some really cool extravagance to it, but it's it's about trying to think of the most simplistic way, the fastest and the most fastest way to get the food to the, to the waiting mouths and, and, and how do you maximize the benefit of that. What Aaron shared makes intuitive sense. So I suggested to him that it must be a no-brainer given that they were in control of their lands. What once was abundant is no longer. You really have to look at ways to really stretch what you have to make it go longer, basically. And I don't know what the, the process will be to, to improve that. You know, you can start on a regional effort, but it's definitely a global effort at some point. Um, and there's other factors that, that, that influence things. But, you know, the, the salmon is a great example. If the water is polluted where it's coming back in or if there's got challenges on their spawning grounds, I mean, that's going to all have an effect on the next year's harvest or the next multiple years of harvest. Elk populations, if we're not doing enough to, to protect where they congregate, and you know, and it's a challenge. I'm not not assigning blame to anyone, but it's it is a challenge. I mean, there's a highway that comes to Lake Cowichan that that you know, just last week another elk was hit. It's, it's a weekly occurrence, and you almost have too much of a good thing. Now you have the population that's very healthy, and they're sort of commingling. They want to get to the water, to the lake, and they're they're, they're just walking wherever. How do we cohabit, right? Fencing the whole highway is pretty excessive, and it's probably, from what I've heard, is very cost prohibitive. But what's your other, what's your alternative options? We've got to figure out a way to to balance that, live in harmony with with the food, with the animals that provide sustenance for our people. I'd argue it even goes beyond just First Nations for for that. I know a lot of people, a lot of hunters out here are on non-indigenous as well. For a while, there's a big movement to trying to go to more wild game as opposed to farmed meat, for lack of better words. In order to understand the stages to get to food sovereignty, Aaron shared how the Subasas operate and the stages of their master community plan. From Subasa's perspective, our mandate is always working for the next generation. It's been passed down from our late hereditary chief, Cyril Livingston, his father, his father. It's always looking at least one or multiple generations out. The main thing that Subasa did is we did a comprehensive community plan about I guess about 10 years ago, and then we, we updated it five years ago. And in that, we presented it back to the community. Actually, we just did an update a year, just over a year ago. And what we did is we presented it back to the community and sort of did a measuring stick to see how we're performing on um, multiple levels. So economic development, education, health, culture, community programs. And basically, it's a measuring stick to sort of see a report card, for lack of better words, to see sort of how are we performing. We had key objectives under each one, and each one of those sort of gets addressed on an annual basis to see how we're performing. The main thing that Subasa did is we, when we last did our plan, we only had 100 acres 
of lands. That's, we only have one reserve. We don't have multiple reserves. So the main thing was how do we maximize that potential off of limited land base? And what we've done is we've we've separated our lands into sort of different regions. So we have a community core, which is comprised of our community office, three three residential houses right now, an elders duplex, oh, and then we have a mini pitch sport court from Hope and Health. And then in the future, we're looking at putting a 7,000 square foot um, community center and youth center, upwards of 20 more residential lots. That's for our community core. Going south towards the waterfront, we have what's called North Shore Estates, and North Shore Estates is broken up into three phases. The first phase was 26 lots that we leased out to non-members. We're a, a land code operating nation, so we're able to enter into 110-year leases on, on those lots. And in 2020, those all sold in January and February. Very, really weird months, but the market was very ripe and very hot. The nation took the proceeds of that and invested heavily into phase two. And phase two is 29 lots. It is 29 lots. We're still actively selling, and we sold 17 of those 29, with the remainder hopefully to be complete by the end of next summer. And then phase three, we'll see a 32, 32 more lots. All south of our community core, so there's a bit of a gap. In between the community core and North Shore Estates, we have two recreational trails that we've put in to have some recreational aspects to our land base. And then we also we built an initial 28 berth marina, and now we're looking to expand that to 110 berths by next summer. Aaron went on to explain how other funding of their master plan is occurring. You know, our lens obviously is initially focused to our, our membership and to the next generations. But realistically, it, it's also shaped to, to the regional body around us too. And we can't leave a good legacy for our next generations if we don't look at the whole picture around us. And yes, that does tie into food sovereignty all the way around. So that hopefully allows us to invest into cultural programs, invest into getting people trained to go out and hunt so that you're not just sending someone out there with no experience so that they understand what I talked about earlier, how to go out there with a healthy mind and healthy spirit. You don't just go out there. If you're angry, you don't go hunting. That's just teachings from our, my, my late father-in-law, the hereditary chief. You have to have a clear mind. And that's when mistakes start happening. If you go out there with, a, with some kind of other attitude, you should really, really consider whether you're going out or not. And then just being humble, like knowing that you're going out on those lands and, and those lands are providing sustenance for your people. Acknowledge that and be proud to acknowledge that. If you go out there with the right mind and the right spirit, usually you will come back with enough to feed your community. While change can be a force for good, what Aaron was discussing was a major sea change for this area. So I wondered how people were reacting. We have more non-members living on our lands now, considerably more. We are now accountable to those individuals as well so far, it's been a sort of this big happy family sort of thing. You know, everyone respects one another, and it's kind of this really cool melting pot of different cultures. You can look at www.lakecouchandfm.ca. That's the nation's website. Vancouver Island is clearly a place where Indigenous people are investing into honoring the past, building for today, and planning for the future. Two different takes on food sovereignty, but with identical goals. That's a wrap for today's episode of Indigenous Voices of Vancouver Island. I want to thank both of our guests, Aaron Hamilton from Subasa and Stevie Dennis of Nas Foods. 
I hope you'll join me on our next episode when we tackle the subject of building strong communities. I'm Chadis Leo, your host and proud member of the Humaku First Nation. <laughs>